Welcome to the Seek Outside Podcast. Hey, you, should, you think that's bad? See Ryan on the phone in the office. <laughs> We got a distinguished podcast guest that everybody knows about on on my left, and then an absolute nobody on my right. <laughs> much less here. distinguished. Yeah, yeah, much much less distinguished. <laughs> now we got uh, we got Megan Lee, mm-hmm. who's been on the podcast here, and then my my little tiny tiny little brother. <laughs> um, he's just a little baby um, <laughs> on my right here. Dylan, subpoena. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah, dude. Thanks for having me back. <clears throat> yeah, of course. Megan, you want to put that just a little yeah. bit closer there? Yeah. yeah. Like a pilot. Mm. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah, that's okay. Good. Yeah. You hear yourself all right? <laughs> I think so. Oh, yeah. Cool. Oh, yeah. It's, cool. it's bizarre. A bit better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, you, so <clears throat> you may be wondering as we're... Uh, as we're sitting here talking, why do I just have some scrubs on from my family? And no, they are not, in fact, scrubs. These are the people that are, are keeping our wild places wild and keeping the wildlife in check and uh, telling the, the Fish and Wildlife Department <clears throat> what hunters can do, what, what recreationists need to be doing to help animals. Um, both of you guys... The thing that you guys have in common is that you um, are wildlife biologists here. And wildlife technicians. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Working for wildlife biologists. Aspiring biologists. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One day. <laughs> but I would say that you guys have both worked on some really cool projects. And, I mean, you know, what's a, you know, what's a good project without, without some grunt work going into it? You know, it's all the grunt work. That's yeah. why we work for the biologists. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. work for the biologists. But um, but no. So you guys are wildlife technicians, right? So one of the big things that y'all do is go out on studies. Um, you guys, somebody want to break that down for us? What what is a, what does a wildlife technician do? Yeah. So there's a lot of different things they can do, but in general, you're going to be working for a biologist or a state agency conducting some sort of research on wildlife. Um, That's pretty much the gist of it. Yeah, we've Um, both worked on a bunch of different projects, different species, so. Mm -hmm. State agency, federal agencies. Private. Private organizations. Yeah. yeah. So, so Dylan, uh, you went to school at Montana State, right? I did. What did you, what was your degree that you graduated with. I got my bachelor's in fish and wildlife ecology and management and hopefully <coughs> a graduate degree at some point but that's why we're just lowly technicians right now. <laughs> the reason I had to call him my my little little tiny brother at the be- at the beginning is because I'm uh, I'm really just self-conscious of that uh that he was able to finish college and I was but uh but and then uh megan uh so you mm-hmm. went to virginia tech right yep sure and did did you graduate with the same degree pretty much it was called wildlife conservation at virginia yeah. tech but it's it's all the same so yeah. basically wildlife biology degrees yeah, yeah. 
Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, like I was saying, I, like y'all are really the the people that I was just doing a podcast um, right before I came here, um, and we were we were talking about you know some pretty heavy hitting issues, right? Um, whether it be wolves or whether it be um, you know tag allocations for for hunting seasons and stuff like that, and um, what a lot of people um, probably don't see uh, is it, obviously they know it's happening, but it's, it's very hard to see it if you're not in close proximity to it, like I am with you guys, but there's a lot of work that goes into just, uh, like for example, Megan, you've worked, uh, with, with grizzly bears, mm-hmm. uh, the past two summers, yep. um, trapping and, and capturing grizzly bears. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, I'm sure you've seen, but, uh, the, the, Montana fish, wildlife and parks is, is kind of debating, you know, grizzly bear, uh, grizzly bear hunting season, stuff mm-hmm. like that. But then there's also like all the, all the, um, campsite rules and, mm-hmm. and bear boxes and stuff like that. And so like studies, like what you were doing, mm-hmm. I'm sure had a big part to play in, you know, the, the fish, wildlife and parks or the, mm-hmm. or the state park, uh, whoever makes rules for state parks, they're going to take that information in and apply it to, you know, whatever rules mm-hmm. they want to make. So Definitely. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll just start with you. Cause your, your project was like super, super awesome. Yeah. I mean, every, <laughs> it seemed like every, every few days we were getting pictures uh, <laughs> with, with you on the top of a, uh, uh, a grizzly bear, basically riding a, a sleeping, <laughs> sleeping grizzly bear. Yes. Important thing. That's very important. Yeah, <laughs> knocked yeah. out. Yeah. Knocked out. Not, not conscious. <laughs> yeah. Don't try that at home. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. But, uh, but yeah, you want to kind of go into that project that you've been working on the past couple summers? Yeah. So I've been working for Idaho Fishing Game doing basically all aspects of the grizzly bear uh, research project, um, which is tied in, of course, with the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So there's the interagency grizzly bear committee. I might have missed a word there. It's a mouthful. Yeah, but something like that. <laughs> yeah, it's close enough. Um, and yeah, so they certainly, you know, use all the information that we get from collaring and trapping bears to mm-hmm. make management decisions. Um, but yeah, we do a lot of uh, trapping, so culvert traps and foothold snares to basically get on the bears, get collars on them, get genetic samples, and just see where they're going and what they're doing, who's related to who how old they are, what shape they're in, just tons of tons of information. And then with that, we also do a ton of conflict management, which I'm sure everybody knows that bears can tend to get into a little bit of trouble mm-hmm. with their with their nose mostly <clears throat> and their big appetites. So yeah, a lot of conflict management and just going door to door, asking people to be bear safe, uh, helping them when bears have, you know, gotten into a chicken coop or a trash can, we will haze the bears and, and pretty much a little bit of everything. Yeah. 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 And so with that hazing, I mean, I, I know that you've told me mm-hmm. you tend to see some idiots out there in the yes. world. <laughs> so what, like, what, like, how do, how do people, how does a camper, like, what's the best way to be bear safe? Uh, up in Highland Park there. Yeah, the best way to be bear safe is, <clears throat> first <go>. of all, <laughs> yes, no, to uh, to know they're there, um, which is surprisingly an issue. Um, not everybody's really? aware that mm. there's bears and especially grizzlies there. 
Um, and just in general, just don't leave anything out. Yeah. That's that's the biggest thing that I can say. If it's if it has any smell whatsoever, it smells good to a bear. Doesn't matter if it's food, drink, toiletries. They don't know the difference. So don't leave anything out in coolers or in unsecured trash cans or anything. So especially when you're camping, you want it in a locked vehicle if if that's, you know, something awesome. you have available yeah. to you. Otherwise, bear boxes, like you mentioned, in campgrounds are, are super important. Or, you know, hanging a bear bag if you're in the backcountry and making sure it's good and far away from where you're camping. And especially... If you're in a tent, never, ever, ever bring anything into your tent that has a smell. Don't even sleep with a tube of chapstick in your tent because... Mm. Wow. I have a question for you. (laughs) I've debated this with many people when out in the outdoors camping. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on spitting toothpaste within camp? You know... (laughs) And spitting in a fire pit, does that remove the scent? (laughs) Not necessarily. I mean, I must say I've spit in fire pits (laughs) and close to camp and everything. And that's, you know, ideally you just kind of walk away from your camp, not do it. Don't do it right next to your tent or anything. Probably don't do it in a fire pit because your fire pit's probably pretty close to your tent. We're all guilty of it though. And you know, little things happen and everybody, you know, does stuff like that. But overall, as long as you're very bear aware and you're doing the large majority of things to be bear safe you're going to be bear safe so while you know maybe i wouldn't do that typically just like a a spit a few feet away isn't the end of the world but i'd i'd get some distance yeah. Yeah. yeah so just in general try to keep anything smelly except for yourself out of your tent yeah um because you know, things do happen, and once bears have kind of gotten food rewards from us before, then they're going to come back. They're really smart. They've got great memories, and all they care about is food. So if they think that you have any food, if they think that anything's edible, they're going to want it, and they're going to remember where that came from. And so that's why we try so hard to really be bear safe and to haze bears so that they have a negative interaction with us and no longer think of humans as something positive that's going to give them food so what what's what's hazing so there's a lot of things you can do to haze a bear um our biggest tool that we tend to use is just like electric mats so for example this summer a bear got into a trash can that it was, it had been a bear resistant trash can, but the latch was broken. Obviously it's not bear resistant anymore at Mm. that point. Um, and yeah, bear got in, got a big food reward. And basically what we do is we have like an electric fence charger, just like, you know, the one you can buy at Murdoch's or something. Mm. And, you know, like a solar powered one. And we put down a big, metal mat and then we put the attractant in the middle Mm. so like the trash bag or the trash can in the middle and the idea is when the bear comes up to come back to you know because typically once they get a food reward they're going to be back to Mm. see if they can get more they get electrocuted and then that freaks them out enough that they they bail they're no longer interested they had a a negative interaction with Mm. that and it pretty much should you know 
help scare them off yeah. and, and get them back to looking for their normal food sources yeah. and not food sources Makes associated. them associate it with a negative Something. thing. That's yeah. the main thing, a so, negative association. Yeah. Is it is it typically like just once that, you know, one, if it happens one time, mm-hmm. they they won't come back if they get shocked? It depends on the bear, yeah. for sure. I mean, bears are definitely... They have their own personalities, their own experiences, and, you know, what they've lived. So, some bears are more persistent. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had black bears that we've paintballed to. That's another mm-hmm. way you can haze them. Paintballs, less lethal shock, shotgun rounds, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them, if they are just really habituated, really food conditioned, they're going to keep coming back. And, really? and that's when, you know, relocation and removing animals from the population happens but typically if we catch it early enough if they haven't you know if they're not repeat offenders that have gotten food rewards in multiple places typically hazing once does a pretty good job of getting them to go away yeah okay but yeah it certainly depends if if bears gotten a ton of food rewards from from people you know it's it's a very slippery slope yeah so they tend to associate people with food in, in areas like that. So, um, so, so when you're driving around, um, and, and talking to people, obviously that's just kind of part of your job, but are you, are you typically like, what's the, what are the kind of people that you're typically dealing with? Are these like, are you dealing with like a surprising amount of like seemingly experienced backpack, you know, campers, Mm -hmm. or are these people all just like rookies from, you know, Florida Mm -hmm. who have no idea what a bear is. It's pretty much everybody. And that's, what's really crazy about it. I mean, granted where I'm doing this work is right outside of Yellowstone. So Mm. of course you have a ton of tourism there. Mm. Um, so people are coming from all over the country, sometimes all over the world. Um, I'm not in the park, so I don't have as much of the full demographic, but yeah, we've got tons of experienced hunters, experienced campers, Locals who've lived there for decades, um, people who've never camped before, people, you know, it's it's pretty much the whole gamut of, yeah. of outdoor experience, um, which is, is really fascinating and interesting and yeah. can be really fun. Um, we do like a lot of education events where we have pelts and paws and, and all this stuff where we can teach people about bears. Mm-hmm. And that's always a ton of fun and it's a good way to kind of get the message out to people who, you know, don't really know about wildlife and do it in a positive way. Whereas the other side of the coin with education is knocking on doors of people who have left trash out or have left coolers out and, you know, saying, Hey, you need to not do this. You can't leave your cooler out. Even if it just has drinks in it, can't leave your trash out, you know, and so that can be difficult because it's not always well received. Yeah. Um, uh, so how is how is that like? They're just like, do people just kind of brush you off in that instance and be like, oh, you know, just a bear? It's I. It's a lot of that. I mean, a lot of people are. Oh, I genuinely did not know. I'm sorry. I will. You know, I'll I'll fix that. I won't do that again. Some people are oh, well, you know, I've been doing it forever. Nothing bad has ever happened to me. And so I get all kinds of reactions. And I'm talking to 
hundreds of people. So, again, everybody's different and has different reactions. But a lot of people are really gracious when... Because we do approach it from the stance of, like, we just want to help. Like, Mm. we're trying to, like, help you help yourself, essentially. Because nobody wants a bear on their porch. Nobody wants a bear in their backyard. Because it's dangerous and it's scary. And, you know, it's just something that should be avoided at all costs. And so a lot of people are happy when we give them the tools to avoid that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you also get the other side of the coin of people who are stuck in their ways and think, oh, well, you know, I shouldn't do anything to prevent bears from coming in because I live here and this is my space. And, well, yeah, that's your property. You don't want a bear there. And if you're leaving stuff out, there's a really good chance you're going to get a bear there. It's not going to be good for any party. Exactly. So it's it's just kind of tough because, well, you know, one thing I hear a lot is, well, you need to control the bears. You need to control your bears. And first of all, they're not my bears. They are wild animals. Mm. They, you know, and because they're wild animals, they're, they're going to behave like wild animals. Yeah. And so if we want to coexist with wildlife, I think it's really important that we do our part to keep them and ourselves safe. Yeah. So yeah. that's really the biggest thing. Yeah. So, so obviously probably most of it is food trash mm-hmm. are there any other uh, uh variables or or attractants for like variables that would make a bear come into town or attractants mm-hmm. aside from like food and trash um i mean bird feeders are another one yeah uh that's a big deal um essentially i mean a lot of people will you know have even hummingbird feeders, that sugar waters, mm-hmm. pretty attractive to a bear. And a lot of people, you know, will have bird feeders and then have a trash can full of bird seed on their porch. And of course, that's, you know, a bear is going to have a field day with that if yeah. it finds it. Um, so those are the big things, um, just like food, uh, bird feeders, trash, anything with a smell. But then you also have like apple trees can cause problems. Mm. So one thing that we do is we go in the fall and we pick hundreds and hundreds of pounds of apples from people's yards who don't use them. Wow. Yeah. It's truck, truckloads full. Or or do something with them. Yeah. Yeah, We, we end up having to throw a lot away, but we do donate as much as we possibly can. Nice. Um, so we'll donate to, you know, food banks, senior citizen centers, and then also to like the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, hmm. um, which is a lot of fun yeah. to be able to kind of help them out and, and give them some some extra food for their bears yeah. and their enrichment activities. So, yeah. you know, there's just a whole gamut of things. It's pretty, I mean, it's just coexistence, really. Yeah. And that's, what, that's what the goal is. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you find that it's, it, is it mostly... Is there one of the species, black bear or grizzlies, that is more prone to human interactions? You know, it really just kind of depends on the area. Yeah. Um, like where just I, bears in general will go find the food. It, exactly. Yeah. I mean, on the East Coast, of course, <clears throat> there's no grizzlies, and black bears tend to get in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Um, black bears are pretty wily in a way that's different from grizzlies, for sure. Um, they're very... I can't really think of the right word, but 
they're just kind they're of more, persistent. Like bold, more bold. Yeah. Bolder. And, and just kind of like, I mean, we have problems with both where I am. Granted, we have more grizzly problems because there are more grizzlies. Um, and, you know, the black bears are kind of, you know, they're there, but not as prevalent as the grizzlies in that yeah. specific area. But do they, do they act differently in grizzly country, the black bears, compared to on the East Coast? I mean, to an extent, but um, I can't speak on that a ton. Yeah. Because uh, I haven't, like, you know, worked directly on a black bear project, so I don't want to say anything that I might not be sure about. But mm-hmm. um, they definitely are different. But one thing, like, especially with us, grizzlies tend to be active at night and at dusk and dawn. And while black bears will be as well, we see them coming out a lot more during the day where mm-hmm. they share space with grizzlies because, you know, they don't want to be out there at the same time. The yeah. grizzlies are the top dog. And if there <laughs> is going to be, you know, an interaction, the grizzly is going to probably come out on top nine out of ten times. So, and black bears know their place in that regard. Um, but, like, for example, on our on our cameras at our bait sites, we very rarely see black bears at night. Um, and pretty much all of our grizzly activity is at night. It's mm. very rare that we see them during the day. So they do yeah. change their behavior to an extent. Yeah. Um, but, you know, not that's in one area that I'm experienced in. Yeah. So don't, yeah. I can't um, necessarily extrapolate to the entire population, but, yeah. but certainly they do over, act. Over in Island Park there. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you guys are pretty close to and this is the last one and i'll move on to dylan (laughs) and then we can kind of we can uh talk about some other stuff at the end but um so island park you know you're right by yellowstone Mm -hmm. do you guys ever have any encounters with with wolves and people like any issues that you know just going through talking to campers they had issues or never wolves try to stay away yeah as far away from people as possible wolves are so skittish i mean when we get them on our cameras because we are setting up bait sites, mm-hmm. um, you know, to get grizzlies to come in and it attracts other animals. We see, you know, we get a ton of martens, coyotes, sometimes wolves, black bears. So everything, cause kind of the point is we're trying to stink, stink it up as much as possible. Yeah. So a lot of animals are interested. Um, but when we do see wolves on our cameras, you can tell they're so skittish. Yeah. They're they're definitely like spooky around the camera, yeah. spooky around the bait. They just kind of don't probably used yeah. to traps and stuff like that. And yeah, they're just <clears throat> like so wary of everything. They're not like bears in the same sense that they want to you know immediately like explore and like figure out like what this thing is because they almost seem like scared of it at mm, first. Yeah. Um, and yeah, when we do get them on cameras. It's usually for a very short period of time, whereas, like, sometimes bears will just freaking hang out for, like, hours on end and yeah. eat just all no the, cares in the meat world. <laughs> that they possibly can, especially yeah. grizzlies, because they're like, I got this elk quarter tied to a tree right here. I'm going to just sit here and eat this yeah. all night. <laughs> and, yeah. um, don't but, even notice they got trapped. <laughs> sometimes they don't sometimes they're pissy though i really? mean it's really hit or miss i mean it depends on the bear of course but i mean we had a bear that 
like broke out a window on one of her traps. Really? (laughs) So it was. Was anybody by the trap? Well, well, we came up in the morning when the bear was in the trap and noticed that the it wasn't like completely removed, but like a corner was like broken off and Damn. yeah so it was pretty and this ain't gnarly a glass window this is a steel oh yeah it's steel window. <laughs> yeah. yeah damn ah, so that's insane yeah it's but yeah we don't get a ton of wolf interaction i hear anecdotal stories from you know people when i'm educating and stuff of i've seen wolf packs out here or i've had interactions but pretty it's rare. so rare yeah, yeah and it's never you know, I never hear it firsthand. Yeah. It's never, it's, or at least very rarely do we, you know, get a call of, oh, there's a wolf here and we'd like somebody to come out and, and figure out what's going on or haze it or something. That's never happened. Yeah. Um. So <clears throat> they they really are just skittish and, and just in general with wildlife, you know, they don't really, they don't want to be around people. Mm-hmm. They don't want conflict. Yeah. I mean, it's the same with bears. They don't they don't want to, you know, if you're out walking in the woods and you're doing your part of being bear safe and you're you're shouting, you're saying, hey, bear, you're making yourself known. Mm. Almost 100% of the time, you're not going to see a bear because if they know you're there, they want nothing to do with yeah. you. The reward has to be worth the risk for... For any animal. For any animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But unfortunately, that reward is worth it for bears sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. When and especially a when they're. Cooler of shrimp or. <laughs> a, literally, that has happened. Cooler of, you know, five pounds of shrimp or a cooler of. We had a bear get into a cooler of energy drinks. And, really? Oh, yeah. And bears get into coolers of beer. I want to see the bears get in the coolers of beer. He's in Alaska now. <laughs> <laughs> he just took off. <laughs> well, they made that movie now. I don't know if you guys have seen it, The Cocaine Bear. No. It's like, what? It's like uh, you know, Sharknado, right? Yeah. I think it's like one of those kind of gimmicky horror movies. That's but so funny. It's actually based on a true story. There's uh, like a drug you know, a, a mule, basically a mule flight, a drug mule flight that dropped a bunch of cocaine because they had the, you know, the FBI on them or something like mm-hmm. that. And apparently some bear got into it. <laughs> and I, now, I, he died immediately. Oh, yeah. But this oh, yeah. movie is, it, it plays off the fact that he was just all coked up oh, and, my God. and murdered a bunch of yeah. people. Yeah. So. And the energy drink thing is is one that I love to bring up to people when we are talking about coolers because one thing i hear a lot is oh well it just has drinks in it yeah it's like no well that's a, that's a lot still, of them are sugary exactly I mean, they, and i mean it's not much different than a hummingbird feeder. exactly yeah. they don't know that it's you know to us it's like beer and energy drink to a bear it's calories yeah. and that's really what it comes down yeah. to is it's calories it's gonna you know it's just gonna add to what they need to hibernate so i mean maybe not the energy drink if they get all hyped up and burn off a bunch of calories but they don't know that it's a lot of sugar though probably goes a long ways for them and um are there are there any um (laughs) like have you noticed that like if a bear had a choice between an elk quarter Mm -hmm. because obviously like sugar in the animal world is a big thing, especially like with bears, right? Because mm-hmm. you're trying to sugar helps them hibernate, right? It's, it's all building fat. If, if a bear, 
Like, say somebody is out in the woods and they absolutely have to keep one piece of food in their tent. They have an elk quarter <laughs> and, uh, and a freaking thing, uh, like a hummingbird for feeder, something with full of sugar. Mm-hmm. What, which one's the bear going to go for? I mean, the bear's more often going to go for the elk quarter. Really? Um, because that is, you know, a more natural food source to mm-hmm. them. I mean, that's what we use <clears throat> to bait is yeah. roadkill. Mm-hmm. The amount of roadkill I've pick, picked up and butchered is unreal. <laughs> but, yeah. um, so, and that is, and there's anecdotal evidence of bears, you know, walking 18 miles as the crow flies to find carrion. Really? Um, really? And, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. They, they're tuned into that. They like the stinky stuff yeah. they like the nasty stuff it's pretty amazing some of the things that we put out there that's that they just disgusting yeah <laughs> and, just i mean like, gut <laughs> piles yeah. and skinned beavers really? skin beavers work really well really? <laughs> um, never trying to catch a bear skin beaver apparently well they yeah they uh what is it uh castor oil yeah from beavers yeah, yeah. super smelly and you that's know, like a common bait for a lot of predators. Oh, yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Beaver caster oil? Mm-hmm. Huh. And it really is just like stink. Really? Like what? Like one thing we say is like just stink it up as much as possible. I mean, yeah. we use fermented blood. We use fish that has basically just been fermented. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, I mean, you don't want to smell any of no, <laughs> the things no. that I'm around on a daily basis at that, especially the blood. It's yeah. pretty nasty, but the bears love it. I mean, they, they they're all about it. it. We yeah. have videos of them. It's, it's honestly super cute, especially like with the cubs. <laughs> You'll get videos of them, you know, coming in and and smelling something, and then they'll get on their back and like rub all up in it, and oh. just like get their whole body just like all smelling. in the nastiness. Wow! And it's, I mean, it's like it's crazy. And then when you're on the bear and you capture it, it's like uh, sometimes they're like, you know, really like nice and fluffy and dry, and then some of them have pooped in the trap peed in the trap really gotten all up in the meat yeah, yeah i mean it's can be they can be nasty pretty gross yeah, yeah. but Damn. i mean they are they are bears and they're gonna do they're what they want to do yeah and wild animals they like the nastiness yeah <laughs> but well i i kind of just uh want to jump over to dylan here um so totally different species right here <laughs> that this guy's working on you should have led with birds and then had the bear as like the yeah the tre- no one's gonna the listen to you yeah. you're not as cool as me <laughs> I don't, I have, no I'm kidding. Or, yeah i mean well that's a that's a good point i'm sure uh I'm sure you guys get a little bit more funding megan than than dylan on the on the ptarmigan uh research but but yeah dill you want to kind of just go into what uh what you do yeah so i've worked primarily on birds mm-hmm. um for the last five or six summers. Um, but most recently I was working for Colorado parks and wildlife doing, well, it was, it was an all kind of Alpine, um, species management survey program. Um, but we are focused on ptarmigan. Um, kind of the background on ptarmigan is they're kind of like a remnant, at least in Colorado, they're a remnant population from like when most of North America was glaciated. 
and Colorado's now like the southernmost extent of the range. They've done reintroduction programs into New Mexico, the Sierra Nevada, um, I believe like the Uintas and in, in Utah. Um, but the main population in, in at least the lower 48, excluding Montana, is is in Colorado. Really? Just due to the the amount of alpine mm, um, yeah. in Colorado. So we were going up um, every week and just exploring different mountain ranges and conducting um, occupancy surveys, basically just whether they're there or not. There's been a lot of funding injected into Ptarmigan recently. Um, they were proposed to be listed as an ESA species. I don't know the year. Um, and that proposal was denied due to the lack of research really? on ptarmigan. So there's been a lot of funding to prevent them to, from being put on the ESA um, list. So my boss, Amy Seglund, is out of Montrose, Colorado here. And she is really curious to see how ptarmigan are doing in Colorado. Um, there's a lot of threats facing ptarmigan now there didn't used to be i mean they're they're kind of a good species for for not interacting with humans because they live in such remote places and um they don't tend to have much hunting pressure and they're just kind of off, off on their own but with the surge in recreation in colorado there's a lot more people up in the high country and coupled with warming temperatures um they're kind of facing some some challenges now, so there's a lot of a lot of interest to see how they're doing in Colorado, um, and it's kind of unresolved yet. We this most recent season, we haven't like reviewed the data yet, but anecdotally, it seemed like they were doing pretty good. We saw a lot of time again, a lot of a lot of hens with chicks, um, but it's hard to say what the yeah. general population trends are are doing. Yeah. Yeah, one season is kind of hard to get a full grasp on. Yeah. yeah, there's some worry that they, the the overall populations might be doing okay, but they're they've noticed a a downtick in brood size, the amount of chicks that that the mothers are raising, um, and also the amount of paired males. They've they've seen a decrease in that, um, so they're worried about the productivity of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so with uh, with ptarmigan, I mean, I feel like this is a species that, if it, you know, if you're a hunter, you probably know about what they are. Right. But um, I, I bet a lot of recreationists don't really know about no. them, just because they they do live in. I mean, obviously, Colorado has a, sounds like a decent population, yeah. but a lot of the other western states probably do not. I no. mean, because they need to be above tree line, right? Right. Um, so when, you know, in conducting this research, uh, when you were telling people, you know, oh, I'm doing ptarmigan research, did did you have many people asking you what a ptarmigan were? Or? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, I think it's definitely not a known species. I mean, once you say the word grouse, people can picture that in their heads. Yeah. But I think, like you said, the fact that they live in such remote places and they're just insanely well camouflaged, they turn like the perfect modeled brown in the summer to match like the alpine rocks with all mm-hmm. the moss and lichen on them and then in the winter they're completely white and they don't move much at all in the winter so people just don't see them much 
Um, and I think that's also part of why they maybe haven't had as much focus in the past on, on seeing how they're doing. Um, but yeah, it's amazing how many people don't, don't know. Yeah, yeah. have never heard of it. Um, so kind that was like the opposite of the yeah the <laughs> polar point opposite. term uh, charismatic megafauna, right? yeah, which is like the 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 big species, the the elk and deer and, and grizzly bear. I mean, the ptarmigan's kind of yeah. A, these are uncharismatic <laughs> microfauna, <laughs> but they're but they're super cool. They, they are when very charismatic, them, actually. Yeah, they're yeah. pretty darn cute. Like yeah. when you actually <laughs> yeah. see them, it's like, oh wow, this is a cool little animal. Yeah, yeah. and I've heard they're they're good eating and. Yeah, I think they're really cool animals. I mean, they live in extreme places to to spend a Colorado winter at twelve thousand feet. You have to be yeah. So so they spend the winter up there. They don't migrate. So down. they they migrate down elevationally a little bit. Yeah. They tend to spend the winter like in the kind of tree line area where you find those like Crumholtz trees, the really stunted growth, mm-hmm. like subalpine fir and all that, um, where they can find a little protection from the wind and the snow. But I was actually just reading that like their home range just drastically shrinks in the winter. They're like pretty much completely sedentary. Really? Um, they might just post up in a little willow grove where they have forage. That's one of their main winter um, forage is willows so they might just spend the whole winter just in the willows um there's videos of them getting flushed out of three feet of snow where they're actually under the snow (laughs) really yeah (laughs) Um, just exploding out of the snow can you imagine how terrifying yeah but they i mean snow is a great insulator so they yeah that's true Mm -hmm. as long as it's below 32 degrees outside (laughs) yeah which it usually is in the alpine yeah Mm -hmm. in the winter um that's so yeah, um, pretty hardcore. Yeah, yeah, definitely sounds like it. So, um, so 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 with ptarmigan, um, they're definitely so. I, th- I think a, a common theme amongst animals right now. I mean, you see you see big legislation that's being attempted to get past like Rawa, which is um, you know it's no secret that we're in the midst of a of a pretty solid extinction event on on earth here right and you know a lot of that has to do with climate change and warming planet and and habitat loss um but to me it kind of almost seems like uh ptarmigan might be a species that would be all right and the reason i say that is because they it sounds like they more depend on just the tree line as opposed to um you know like weather circumstances is that true or is that a is that not a good claim there well i think it's like maybe just a little more i mean like everything there's a lot of nuance to it Mm -hmm. um i think with later or earlier snow melt in the spring and and later snowfall in the winter um with that color change in their in their uh feathers Mm -hmm. that makes them very vulnerable to predators Mm -hmm. if they're not synced up with the the snow patterns um you can find that in a lot of species snowshoe hare um weasels where they any animal that turns white in the winter it's usually based off day length Mm. not necessarily the weather so Mm. even if it's like the days are are longer um they might like the snowpack might be non-existent so they're white in when they should be brown so that's one of the challenges they face they also 
um, are extremely like sensitive to temperature changes. Really? Anything over like 70 degrees, they become really stressed. Really? On like in mid July, you'll find them often like in snow banks, like snow bathing mm. just to cool off. Mm. Um, well, so that's got tons of down and stuff oh, yeah. like that just to survive up there. Right. And then like the last thing is, is with warming temperatures, they've seen, uh, an elevational rise of tree line. Mm. Um, so they are suffering from habitat. Yeah. Loss. So as much as they no depend way. on trees for a little bit of protection, in the winter, they need that Alpine habitat. Cause they, they feed mostly on like four, like flowers and grasses and, hmm. and greens in the, in the summer. And with tree line encroachment, um, a lot of the, their food sources are getting squished into a narrow and narrower band and unlike a lot of species they don't have anywhere to go up up slope because they're at the top of the slope you know um so they're kind of getting squished between cliffs and and trees right now yeah um so they're yeah they're actually like maybe more um more prone more prone to to the effects of of climate change and and habitat loss than than other And like I said earlier, with the amount of recreation in Colorado, like the whole, um, like four wheeling culture and all that, not, uh, I mean, I love doing that, but there's a lot more roads in the Alpine than there used to be even 30 years ago. Um, and they, they're thinking that's definitely affecting them, making them choose where they put their nests in different areas and, and just kind of driving them out of their prime habitats. Yeah. So, so before you worked on ptarmigan this past summer, you worked on sage grouse, right up in up yep. in Montana. Did so like these are two fowl species of very different habitats. Right. Do you see that they are kind of both suffering from the same kind of things uh, in terms of population decreasing? Or yeah, I mean. Like you said, they have very different life histories. They live in very different habitats, but like most animals on earth, the just habitat degradation is, is putting a big toll with sage grouse. It's a little different. You have different factors influence them. Um, they're finding that fence lines are playing a big role in sage grouse populations because they provide perches for predators Mm. Mm. and also restrict the movement. Um, while they can fly, they're not very good flyers. (laughs) Um, so yeah, there's different factors influencing sage grouse and obviously sage grouse get a lot more attention, um, mm-hmm. because they live in areas that are, there's a lot more people Close and population yeah. and a lot of ranching and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Agriculture. Um, not a lot of people hunt ptarmigan either. No, there's mm-hmm. probably way more sage grouse hunters than ptarmigan. Um, yeah. And so you were saying just on that subject, you were saying something, um, I think I was kind of asking you, you know, just about not, I wasn't necessarily asking you for spots, but I was just <laughs> curious if, you know, if a person were to go ptarmigan hunting, you know, what, what, sh- what should they look for and stuff like that? But you said you brought up some good points about, you know, just being it, like ptarmigan and, and, and sage grouse, grouse in general. I mean, if you're, if you've ever elk hunted in, in Colorado, you've probably come across a, a sage grouse and, it's not like they make a big effort to get away from you, right? They kind of right. depend on their camouflage a lot. So, so what are some of the things that somebody should think about um, 
you know, if they wanted to go hunting any of these species, I mean, what are, what are some of the, some of the things you just got to be aware of? Right. <clears throat> well, I think one of the similarities between sage grouse and ptarmigan is they live in very specific habitats. Like a sage grouse can't live in any old sagebrush flat. They have very specific species of sagebrush that they live in and, um, like canopy cover, how much mm. protection there is from predators provided by that sagebrush. So like ptarmigan, they have a small area that they live in and that can be locally exploited. Mm -hmm. Um, if you just hit an area hard hunting it, you could knock out most of the birds in, mm -hmm. in that specific area. Um, but I think like, I have no problem with, with hunting either of them. I went into this last summer, like, Oh sweet. I'm going to get some ptarmigan spots to, mm -hmm. to go hunting, but, um, probably more for like personal reasons than scientific reasons. I, I probably wouldn't hunt them now just having interacted with them so much. They are very docile, especially ptarmigan. Um, they rely so much on their camouflage that you can literally walk right up to them and they don't deal with a lot of like mammalian predators. Most mm -hmm. of their predators are, are birds like raptors and stuff that yeah. are, so they're looking up rather than on the ground. Um, so you can walk right up to them. So I don't know. I, it doesn't seem like the funnest thing to hunt. I mean, yeah. maybe with a dog, it would be fun. Like, yeah flushing them up and like i said i have no problem but if you are going to go out and hunt ptarmigan i would say or sage grouse i would say kind of spread out your hunting pressure mm -hmm. so you're not just wiping out the whole little basin or sagebrush flat um and i would also say that taking males from the population is going to have less an effect on the population um because the females are are the drivers of of productivity and mm -hmm. obviously they give birth and raise the chicks mm -hmm. um but that can be really hard especially if you're like flush hunting yeah because Can't. yeah it's hard to it's not like a pheasant where you know Pretty right obvious. away it's a yeah. hen or a yeah uh, or a male um but if you can get a good look i would say try to get the males with mm -hmm. ptarmigan the males have a, a a very white chest in the summer um in contrast to that that brown uh, rest of their body. They also have like a red eye comb, mm. um, during the breeding season. And it's kind of the same, same with sage grouse. They have a big white chest. The males do. Um, <laughs> so yeah, if you're going to go out and hunt ptarmigan, I would say don't hit one area super hard and try to get the males, but most of all, just abide by the, the state regulations. Um, I think the hunting regulations for sage grouse are probably a little more up to date with the science, mm -hmm. um, with ptarmigan, it's actually a fairly big bag limit. I think it might be three or six a day. Oh, wow. um, yeah, I think it was six. I think I it was, was six, yeah. which is a lot, but I think part of that, where that number came from is just cause nobody hunts them. Yeah. Um, so there's not a big pressure, but you can, I mean, if you kill six birds in a basin, that's probably all of the ptarmigan in that basin really wow um they're pretty spaced out across the landscape yeah huh man ptarmigan <laughs> it, i feel like it's uh i don't know i've always been fascinated with them just because they live up above tree line there and they're just they're mysterious creatures i mean both of you guys are really kind of dealing with uh you know mysterious 
I mean, Grizzly Bears, right? Um, they 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 get pressed, but I mean, they're hard to see. I mean, you you drive through Yellowstone, and yeah. you know that's the highest concentration that area. In, oh yeah. In the United, aside from Alaska, and they're still hard to see. Um, yeah. But you know, I, I think um, a, a question that I might have for both of you guys is obviously you deal with um, these animals that are that are both of them, you know have the potential to be hunted or or are hunted and you know there's there's the the definite human element um mm-hmm. that both of you guys probably deal with like with you know you said oh i'll have some good ptarmigan spots maybe i'll be able to go hunting and then you you kind of get connected to this animal right and you start to see and and you get kind of you know you, you start to think that they're it's such a cool animal that you wouldn't want to go after it. And obviously, Megan, mm-hmm. you, you've, I don't think you've ever hunted. Maybe you went out one, once with us. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you're probably not a big hunter. But, um, I mean, grizzly bears are kind of in the, I don't want to say in the crosshairs, but they're uh, in, it's a hot topic, right? For as, sure. Wh- as to mm-hmm. whether you can hunt them. I mean, how do you guys deal with, uh, with kind of that balance between the, because I'm sure, Dylan, you after your ptarmigan study, you probably had your own opinions of what the 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 regulations should say or how um, you know the the state agencies should regulate whether roads can go through here or right. you know how or if they should regulate people going up there. And uh, Megan, I know for a fact that you've I mean you've talked about that. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you guys deal with that? Uh, maybe we can start with uh, Megan. We'll go oh, with Megan all right. here. Um, <laughs> But uh, how, how do you deal with that, uh, you know, th- like just that personal connection, mm-hmm. but then also being kind of looking at it from the 10,000 foot view yeah. to see what's best for the species? And mm-hmm. It's really difficult. I mean, especially with something as charismatic and controversial as grizzly bears. I mean, everybody has their own opinions and they all tend to be very strong in mm-hmm. what they believe. Um, which obviously I understand. Um, and it's hard when you're, when you're on a bear, when you touch the bear, when you get its collar on it, you can see where it's going. You can see, you know, especially with my second year on that project, it even kind of, it changed my perspective in a sense that I caught bears that I had caught the previous year and Mm, was able to see how they had changed and how, you know, I can compare their weight, their measurements, everything from the previous year to the current year. And there is a real special aspect to that. And you Mm -hmm. really do, you can get attached in that sense because you're just kind of watching them grow throughout their lives. Mm -hmm. And especially with grizzlies, they're so, I mean... I don't know. I'm biased, but I think they're so beautiful and they are so, I mean, they're so unique and they each have their own personalities. And I think that's where it gets tricky though, Mm -hmm. is some people, and I've had this before. Some people say, wow, that's so beautiful. And that's why I want to go hunting. Like I've had that with ducks that I like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I really want to go hunt that duck or, or doll sheep or whatever, whatever Mm -hmm. like inspires you. It can kind of, turn you either way like oh that's so beautiful i don't want to hunt it or that's so beautiful i do want to hunt it. yeah and of course by no means you both know i'm not anti-hunting i benefit 
immensely from both of you guys hunting (laughs) (laughs) and all the meat in the freezer. Yeah. So, and I've been pushing Dylan to duck hunt (laughs) this season. So, yeah. Need some mallard bread. Yeah. But yeah, it definitely changes your perspective when you're up close and personal with the animal and when your life for months at a time all day every day is dedicated to that animal Mm. it really really does change things um and with grizzlies specifically it's controversial and difficult because uh, you know i hear a lot like oh you know y'all need to open up the hunting and you and all that and it's like well you know that's not our decision that's a federal Mm -hmm. you know they're still federally protected so as long as they're federally protected you know the state agency can't just open hunting willy nilly yeah. like yeah. some people. I kind think of. that's a big distinction. Like what what Megan and I do, we're kind of the front line mm-hmm. of this whole process of of regulation and management of wildlife. We're just out there collecting the raw data. We're mm-hmm. not even a lot of times analyzing that data that falls mm-hmm. to the biologists. So we're really just like the instruments on the ground collecting the data, and then it's mm-hmm. a whole chain from there to get to legislation and regulation. Um, and it's by no means like what we find is yeah. going to dictate, like it's a suggestion and lawmakers take that into account when they, when they set mm-hmm. these regulations. But it's, it's just a fact that society is the main driver of wildlife sure. management and as it should be, because, yeah. because it's like, a resource for all. It's a yeah. resource at the end of the day, and it's and humans are interacting with these animals. Um, but yeah, it, it it's a long gap between the data and between what actually what comes out. Of it. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. you know that adds another another factor to it of it being kind of hard sometimes for us is what we see and what we do and the data we collect, like Dylan just pointed out is so far removed sometimes from from the top line Mm -hmm. where things are being decided that you know you can put in this hard work and and do all that you do and while it's very valuable it might not necessarily be a huge factor in the end which is completely understandable because like dylan was saying there's a ton of nuance in all of this and it's impossible to cover all of it yeah but you know when as there should there should be like there should every party should have a seat at the table and and there's a lot of ways that animals impact people's lives whether it's hunting or recreation or Mm -hmm. agriculture or ranching any of that um but it like a grizzly is going to have a lot more of that than a ptarmigan. There's no ptarmigan mm-hmm. killing <laughs> ranchers' cattle. <laughs> <laughs> they don't get in your trash, your cooler, yeah. or anything. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a lot different. But I mean, it definitely there is a certain attachment that you get when you dedicate your life to it, at, or just dedicate three months to it. Yeah. I mean, it's especially you know for us when it is just every single day and your whole brain power going towards one thing, you know, it really is. You get emotionally invested for sure. For sure. I just like you do with anything. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, how do you feel that the, um, like how, how do you feel that the state of wildlife protection and like give it a grade 
Um, <laughs> and Ooh. I know I know it's a super nuanced yeah. thing, and it, there's probably some species where it's better. But in general, do you feel that uh, you know the federal government is and the lawmakers are listening to the studies in in most cases? Or I'd say by and large science is very much accounted for in Mm -hmm. the management of wildlife in this country i'd give it i don't know b plus b maybe a b yeah um certainly a lot better than it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago for sure um i think one of the problems is is we kind of need to be at an a plus right now with Mm -hmm. how rapidly changing the landscape is right now like with climate change and habitat loss and and all that stuff um Beef it's doesn't h- cut it necessarily. Yeah, yeah, we really need to like be overachieving to to put in protections before um, before it's too late, and, and and knowing what to protect and what is doing okay, and mm-hmm. and that's where it gets tricky. And there's a lot of people that would say things are overprotected or underprotected, mm-hmm. and it, it's it's hard to find that balance. And that's where the science comes into play mm-hmm. is, is hopefully that's kind of the, the framework for, mm-hmm. for where those protections come into play. Yeah. The biggest yeah. hope with everything that we do is just that something comes of the hard work that we put yeah, into it. Somebody that, looks at it. Yeah. Somebody looks at it, it yeah. reads the report and you know, yeah. Can thinks see, about it. Yeah. yeah. Just, and and yeah, science just is critically by no it. means perfect. I mean, oh, I, no. especially in the field of ecology and wildlife mm-hmm. biology, it's, it's not experimental study for by and large. It's, it's just on the ground. We're not in a lab. We're not it's in a lab. You can't control. So like the data is going to be not perfect. And the biologists work really hard to analyze it in a way that, that kind of cuts out a lot of those variables, but it's, mm-hmm. it's never going to be perfect, mm-hmm. but it's the best tool we got right now. Um, and yeah. so hopefully people yeah. listen to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I think that's that's pretty pretty good uh, representation of what's going on right now. Um, For sure. Just kind of want to finish off on one more thing, Megan. If there is one thing uh, that you could uh, that you could change about, uh, you know, how if there's one thing you could do in the grizzly bear world to to help the the overall status of them, what would you do? Oh, that's a loaded question. Um. You know, really just educate more people on the yeah. facts, I think. I think that is probably the biggest thing that I run into on a daily basis is just kind of a, a lack of knowledge or, you know, there's a lot of myths about about bears, mm. especially in wildlife in general. But really with bears, it's they're perpetuated a lot differently um, because so many people want to see them in a negative light and when mm. you when you hear the the myth about them you know you you believe it because mm. it reinforces what you want yeah. and so i think just education and that goes for so many wildlife but yeah. i just you know i put so much time and effort into telling people about bears how to recreate safely um and it's just a huge thing. I mean, just safety in the outdoors is really big besides just bears. And I think in general, I would just love to be able to reach more people and yeah. really teach them not only about bears, but just, I think like Dylan was saying with the increase in recreation in Colorado specifically, but all over the country for sure, 
you know, we see a lot of people who are are coming out and are are enjoying it, but just maybe don't necessarily know as much as people, you know, like you guys who grew up doing it or me who went to school for it and everything. And so I'd love to just be able to really teach people how to get out and enjoy everything that that I love and that I have dedicated my professional life to. You know, I just love to teach people how to do it safely, how to keep themselves, the wildlife, the habitat, everything just, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. in top condition. I yeah. think I think really that's just the biggest thing. Uh, I mean, education, that's that's the that's the big one. Yeah. Dylan, what about you? Any anything that you would change legislatively or perspective-wise about ptarmigan? Um, maybe just even larger than ptarmigan. Um, and I think there is a big put, like you mentioned, the Rawa Act, and, and there's been a lot of good re- legislation recently. But, like, I think providing more funding towards non-game species is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the model we have in North America is is largely driven by by dollars spent by hunters and fishermen and, and firearms users and all that stuff. Um, so it makes sense that a lot of the funding is directed towards game species. Mm-hmm. But I think if we can learn more about the non-game species and and kind of take a, a more um, e- ecosystem approach towards wildlife conservation, it'll benefit all the species rather than mm-hmm. just the ones we love to hunt. Um, and I mean... I've worked on a lot of game species too, but yeah, just more funding towards, mm-hmm. towards kind of the, the unsung yeah. animals. Yeah. Um, it really is all, all connected. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the ecosystem, every animal, it's all, you know, yeah. they all like rely on the same basics. A, a healthy ptarmigan habitat is, is great. Bighorn sheep habitat, great mountain goat habitat, great, you know, any of the animals that live up there, um, and I think there is a big, there's, there's definitely a push towards that now is taking that more ecosystem approach. For sure. Know? And I, I, so is it, so like, just real quick on that, um, would it be better? Like, is it better to, for the whole ecosystem to look after like the, the smaller, like, like a field mice, right? Is, is pumping a bunch of dollars into, into protecting the field mouse, um, going to be better for that ecosystem like here let me let me rephrase this so in the ptarmigan uh you know model if you're putting a lot of money into bighorn sheep conservation is that the same as uh like is it going to do the same for the ptarmigan as putting a bunch of money into the ptarmigan to the sheep does that make sense yeah i I know what you're trying to say yeah Yeah, like where where would the money have the most impact i think rather than either or i think it's we've put so much money into into learning about game species and we know a lot about them and have great models predicting their populations and all that stuff and set really good regulations for the most part um i think there's just a lot of unknown about Mm the the non-game species and in figuring out that unknown you'll uncover a lot of great data and tools for mm-hmm. for protecting the, the ecosystem in general i don't know if it's really like an either or yeah. but mm-hmm. i think if you do put more money into non-game it's gonna that money's gonna 
percolate throughout mm-hmm. the whole yeah. the whole wildlife conservation it's help system everything because yeah. we already know right. so much about those. Yeah, exactly. it's just and more of an equal mm-hmm. approach. Right. Yeah, <laughs> there's just such a wealth of information to still be discovered. I yeah. mean, and and it's so getting much. more and more complex. I mean, some of yeah. like the <laughs> ecological models that that scientists are working on nowadays are insane i mean mm-hmm. they have like harvard mathematicians working on this stuff like <laughs> like yeah. how so like what just because it's so complex just mm-hmm. like i mean just the natural down to the microbes and yeah like, and there's just so much kind of you know noise in the data because like dylan was saying it's it's not perfect because we're not in a lab so yeah. the models you know like you that are built are a lot more complicated because yeah. it's not just one factor, because everything's so interconnected. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's where that like ecosystem approach to conservation comes into play. Like if For you sure. protect the ecosystem, you don't have to kind of suss out a lot of those like nuances of the individuals. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, did you guys have anything else that you wanted to touch on here? Uh, I mean, wildlife biology is a great yeah. career. If you want to be it's, a technician, you're yeah. going to be poor. Yep. But you're going to see some really cool stuff yeah. and get to meet some really cool people. And We always say it's got the highest highs and the lowest lows. Yeah. And it really is true. I mean, you do some amazing things. You're not employed all the time. You don't always get paid yeah. that well. And I, but I, I get to basically hunt in July. Yeah. <laughs> not, not with a gun, <laughs> with my binoculars, with but yeah. it's, no, it's awesome. the same thrill. So Yeah, and yeah. it's, you know, it's... It's just, it's just fun. I mean, as tough as it can be. Yeah. I mean, as much as I can spend, you know, hours and hours a day in a truck at my job, it, you know, it's really worth it in the end. And you put in all just, I mean, we've done, we've both done some pretty just insane things. I'm always jealous. (laughs) (laughs) If you ask me, you know, like. Six years ago, if you thought that I'd be here, if I thought that I'd be here now, I'd be like, what the hell? Like, yeah. I, that's not even a career I can do, you yeah. know? I didn't know it was possible, but, yeah. you know. If you're awesome. interested, look into it's it. It's great. There's great programs all over the country, mm-hmm. and yeah. and you don't even need college degrees to, to volunteer or, yeah. or get on a project and, really? and see some cool stuff. Yeah, you yeah. can just call your local agency and ask to volunteer, yeah. and a lot of times... They'll be People, happy. They can yeah. use it. Yeah. They'll, they'll find something to do with you, yeah. for sure. Nice. I mean, and yeah, do, yeah, just do anything you can to help, help get the out animals. there. Yeah. Peace, yeah. love, save the whales. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, Thanks, and yeah, keep it up. Seek outside. You guys are, are doing awesome stuff, yeah. spreading the message. And, and and big factor in that, you know, education thing I was talking about, yeah. stuff like this, you know, reaching a lot of people is it's really great and it's fun to be a part of so yeah. thank you i wouldn't you. say a lot i wouldn't say <laughs> but we got a strong don't sell yourself <laughs> short <laughs> nah, y'all yeah thanks great. for having us yeah, yeah. Thanks.